0: Welcome to episode 38 of the Talking Vartan podcast. I'm Asped David Medzorian of Ararat Lodge Number One here in Boston. I'm glad you're here. It's hard to believe, but it has been nearly two years since the tragic 44-day war in Artsakh, although it is also referred to as a massacre, genocide ethnic cleansing. The atrocities followed an invasion by Azerbaijani, Turkish, and mercenary forces, a war that left thousands of Armenians dead, many more injured, and forced countless others to flee their ancestral homes to become refugees in Armenia and beyond. The consequences of that war are still with us, whether we live in Artsakh or Armenia itself, or here in the diaspora, but why did it happen? What were the political, military, and financial motivations? And just as important, could it happen again? These were just a handful of the many questions that journalist and activist Vic Jarami wanted answers to. He wanted to get to the bottom of it all, to look past the government and military propaganda and the limited and not always accurate media coverage. The end result is motherland an award-winning documentary feature film that Victor Rami wrote, produced, and directed. Motherland has been widely acclaimed. It won for Best Documentary Feature at the Cannes Film Festival. It was also a winner at the Eastern Europe Film Festival, the LA Indies Festival, the Toronto International Film Festival at SIFT, and others. When he's not making documentaries... Vic Jarami is busy as editor and publisher of The Blunt Post, as well as radio host and co-producer of The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK Radio in North Hollywood, California. It's a program that deals with a diverse range of news-oriented issues. His guests include politicians, including members of Congress and other very high-profile figures. The program also features Vic Jarami's own commentary and analysis. Vic is a respected activist for gay rights and also founded the Truth and Accountability League, TAL, which advocates for both Artsakh and Armenia. He joins me today from Los Angeles, California. Vic, thanks so much for talking to us. The film Motherland is truly an extraordinary documentary. I had the chance to see it the other day, and it's my hope, as I know it is yours, that millions more around the world will also have a chance to see it. The documentary focuses on the 44 days beginning on September 27th, 2020, when Azari military forces attacked the region known as Artsakh. But you try to put that conflict into its proper context, which is not easy. How did the whole process begin?
1: Well, first of all, thank you, David, for having me on the show. Um, I truly appreciate it. I'm a huge fan of Knights of Artan, the incredible work that you do, and I'm privileged and honored that I was invited to join uh, Knights of Artan just a couple of months ago. So, and thank you for having watched the film and your feedback. I made this film because it was a, ne- a necessity. Like most Armenians, you know, when uh, September 27th happened, I was basically glued to my my phone, Twitter, uh, online, uh, just seeing live footage or footage that would come only hours after and just just unbelievable. I couldn't believe this was happening. I couldn't believe the the barbaric acts that were being committed against Armenians. But even more so, I couldn't believe the deafening silence of the international community. I put community in, uh, quotations because the world knows that they didn't act as a community. And I tried to do everything that I can, like most Armenians, to help and to do my part Uh, as little as it was, to bring attention to it, to do whatever I could. The first thing that we did was my non-Armenian colleague uh, and I, Nicole, created the I Stand With Artsakh in Armenia celebrity PSAs. She's an entertainment uh, publicist, and I've interviewed a lot of celebrities. So we got together and thought this might be the quickest way to really bring some attention to it. Uh, After that, as we were trying to figure out how to do something. I thought getting different cities recognize Artsakh formally was was a way to go as cities around Italy and France and other nations were doing it. I was able to get the city of West Hollywood and city of Burbank here in uh, Southern California to recognize uh, Artsakh, uh, but it wasn't enough and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't doing much. So the next indicated step to me, which came to me around January of last year was I need to make an investigative journalistic uh, documentary to really um, get to the bottom of this and not just to focus on uh, the, you know, I don't call it a war because I think it was a genocidal attack and ethnic cleansing uh, just because um, a bunch of young guys decided to uh, defend their community and their, their village and their town doesn't make it a war to me. So I wanted to investigate as to how this could have happened, why it happened. Why was there no reaction from uh, the most powerful nations in the world, as well as the agencies and organizations and bodies and NGOs that are supposed to intervene? United Nations, Council of Europe, European Union, OSCE, CSTO. It was unfathomable to me just how much apathy there was. Uh, And of course, we saw this in contrast when Ukraine was invaded by Russia, and good for Ukraine, for having the world react properly. But I wish they had done the same with Artsakh. So I wanted to make a film that's going to really analyze all the different aspects surrounding the attack on Artsakh. What did Azerbaijan and Turkey do leading up to it, their preparation to build up?
0: That was one of the things that impressed me very much at the beginning of the film. This was not just, uh, it all began on September the 27th, there was a long history that led up to that. And uh, right. I'm not just talking 10 or 20 right. years, but much, much longer than that. Almost, You, know, you literally yeah. have to go back more than a century or more mm-hmm. to see the geographical and political dealings between all it, of these countries. Who was what, who was in power, and, and where Armenia stood in all of this. And I thought that was very important that you make that point to all of us that, you know, this just yeah. didn't start two years ago. This has been.
1: No, no, you couldn't look at the, the the attack in a capsule. It wouldn't make sense, especially to non-Armenians. And I made this film primarily for non-Armenian audiences. And I imagine that I'm making this film for a 25 year old guy, maybe in Ohio, who probably has never heard of an Armenian or met one, couldn't even place Armenia on the map. So how do I capture this guy in t- about two minutes, the beginning of the film, so that he would he would uh, watch it thoroughly? And so I said, OK, uh, if I go straight into Artsakh Armenia, they're going to get lost and bored and confused. So I had to put it in context. Where is Artsakh? What is Artsakh? How did we get here? Why was it annexed? Uh, why was it under the administrative role of Azerbaijan SSR? for 70 years. And so I did the film in chapters so that it's easy for people to understand. You know, chapter one being context, chapter two, the buildup. You know, what did Turkey and Azerbaijan do? This was a premeditated, very comprehensive plan of attack, bringing mercenaries, uh, ISIS, uh, Libyan, Pakistani, and uh, and Syrian mercenaries to do the dirty work, the pileup of weapons, etc. And then, of course, chapter on attack, uh, and then I examined the role of the international community or lack thereof. And then media. Media had a huge role in, in their toxic, harmful, both sidedism and false balance and their lazy, biased, uh, so-called journalism and reporting that happened on this.
0: I have really, to agree with you there. Uh, forgive the interruption. Uh, I can remember no? so well, as I'm sure you can, during that entire period I was scanning the news stations here in the United States, you know, CNN and MSNBC and Fox and the BBC, et cetera, et cetera, you know, everything that we had access to here in the U.S. to try to get some sort of understanding of exactly what was going on there. And first of all, there was precious little coverage to begin with, very, very little. And you talked about why that was the case, or at least some of the reasons why that was the case. But what I saw, to me, and I'm a broadcast journalist of many years, was very one-sided. And mm-hmm. really, it did not, as you also emphasized in the, in the film, it did not really have any sort of an idea with regard to the history and the facts and all of that. This was not just a, this just started, this has been going on for a long time, and that emphasis was not made in the, in the coverage that I saw. Was that one of the more frustrating things for you both at the time in 2020 and go ahead.
1: Frustrating would be an understatement. I'd I'd be seething in anger at two, three, four in the morning reading international media, whether it was BBC or, uh, you know, Sky or, you know, CNN International and just thinking, who are these reporters? Who are these journalists? I mean, are, are you serious? Is this is this what we're getting? It was, um, it was absolutely appalling. Uh, it was, um, you know, the, just the mix of bias, uh, lazy journalism, and really regurgitating the propaganda of Azerbaijan and Turkey. And as you know, I go in the film about the the kind of money Azerbaijan has spent in in decades leading up to this to really reshape the opinion. And the mindset of the world, especially uh, Europe and North America, uh, with their with their lies and propaganda and disinformation, and they continue to do so from hiring um, very powerful lobbying groups here in the states, as well as PR uh, firms uh, in Europe and the U.S with well, paid placements now you saw the shorter version of this film it was three hours when we first put it together oh my and of course I had to take a lot of it out but in the longer version which will be used for educational purposes I really um go into depth uh, of some of these uh, media outlets and what kind of corruption that happens in the in the newsrooms that that led to some of this I go into um uh, a gentleman by the name of Jason Katz, whose only uh, who's only a client is the government of Azerbaijan, mm-hmm. who basically writes advertorials. He's, you know, he's a paid agent for them, sort of. He writes these advertorials and places them in, you know, this these high profile publications. And, you know, there's there's so much of that that's happened. It's just unfathomable. So I'm, you know, the film was really to explain all the different aspects. And then, of course, I wanted to finish it with where are we now? You know, what's what's the status now and not to finish it on a a low note, but to give give people hope. But with reality check of what we need to do going forward, because the situation is a lot more grave than most people, even Armenians, really realize even today as you and I are speaking.
0: I know that early on in this entire process, in fact, before you even began with the actual production work, you had to know that at some point you were going to have to go over there and Mm -hmm. see certain things for yourself and talk to people who were there and who are the eyewitnesses. And there's quite a bit of that in the film. And to be very honest with you, some of it's very difficult to hear Not in terms of uh, whether it's believable or not, but they are describing some pretty horrific things. And there is, again I say, some footage in the uh, thing that is in the film that's quite disturbing to watch, too. But nonetheless, it did happen. And it would have been very simple for you to leave that part out. Was it an early decision for you that, Mm -hmm. you know, we really have to show this, we have to show the best and the worst of everything that happened over there you know the heroics and also the barbarity of this
1: yeah absolutely um i you know i i believe in bluntness and i believe in 100 percent transparency this is not a film it's not a worm and fuzzy film it's meant to make people feel, feel uncomfortable and part of that is as people need to see uh the most Horrendously barbaric inhumane things that were done to Armenians, all the beheadings oh my so God. it was it, it was it was definitely not even a decision. it was going to be in there. It was just a matter of how much of it would I put in and how much will I blur it? You know so <clears throat> I tried to not uh, make people really disturbed, but at least a little uncomfortable because you need to walk away from it. Really with the sense that something like this, we never thought, you know, we kept saying, uh, you know, we keep talking about the Armenian genocide happened uh, 107 years ago, but here it is, it was happening again. And it's the ethnic cleansing still happening again. So um, I had to show the good, the bad and the ugly.
0: Was it easy or difficult to get people, eyewitnesses there to talk about what they saw? And also, were there others who wouldn't talk? (laughs) It was, I was very surprised and
1: impressed and, and grateful that so many veterans wanted to talk to me and how open they were. Because here I was this like Armenian American guy just like goes over and puts a camera on them and, and lights and says, you know, spilled the beans. So I was really grateful for that. I was also grateful to talk to a lot of refugees, a lot of people from Artsakh who'd lost everything. Um, it was a little bit more challenging to get uh, officials in Armenia to talk to me. And I understand. I understand the reasoning behind it. But for the most part, no. I mean, unfortunately, there were a lot of people that I could have talked to. And I did um, because that many people were affected.
0: Were there any that you tried to talk to who just said, no, I can't do it. It's just too painful. No. Everybody was willing to, to open up about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. More than I more than I thought, actually.
0: What do you think their reasons were for talking and wanting to talk?
1: You know, I don't know. I mean, they would have to tell you, but these guys are mostly between 18 and 21. Having seen what they saw, having uh, some of them have lost their limbs. Some of them have lost their friends. As you saw, one of them lost his brother next to him. Yes. Another one lost his best friend that died next to him. I just can't imagine the kind of pain and the kind of trauma that they carry with them. So I would think that they want to share that with people so that that others know what happened. But, you know, they're very humble and they don't share it in a feel sorry for me at all it's the the opposite. They feel a sense of responsibility. And they're just truly, truly heroic people. I was just really touched by, by their participation and how much they opened up to me. Now, Vic, this was not your first
0: trip to Armenia. In fact, I recall you saying in the film that the very first time you were there, you were only three years old. Yeah. And despite that very young age, you still have a few memories of that very first trip. How many times have you been there I since do. then? So when I
1: was three, my, my parents took me there. We were there for three months. At the time, uh, a great deal of my mom's family, uh, her sisters and brothers lived in Armenia. They were, they had moved back to Armenia to live there in the late sixties. And I hadn't been back to Armenia until as an adult, I went for the first time in 2018. Uh, in 2018, I went for the first time. I just fell in love. I was just, you know. <laughs> I was home. It was really a, an incredible uh, experience. I remember going to God uh, to uh, Gerhard mm-hmm. and uh, and I thought, and I'm a spiritual person, I don't know how religious I am, but I'm definitely spiritual and I remember going to and going, you know if there's a God, he lives here. Mm-hmm. it was it was just a, a very profound experience um just being in Armenia and of course unfortunately, the, I wouldn't go back for two, three years until I went after the attack.
0: Yeah, and I understand exactly how you felt about being home. My mother and father, uh, both of whom were um, spotter beds and uh, did we in the Knights and Daughters of Vartan respectfully, began going to Armenia 50 years ago. They went twice a year, every year until 2018. And uh, my father passed away just a couple of months after the war the invasion, the massacre, the genocide. Um, But he absolutely loved, as does my mother, who's still with us, uh, Armenia. And I had only been there uh, twice. I had been there in 2011 with a family. My whole family had gone over there. And then for about 36 hours, uh, just a couple of years ago. But last year, I was there for a month, the entire month of September. And it was... It was a life-changing experience for me just to, to be there. I felt at home the first day. The first day! Yeah. And I am not a fluent Armenian speaker by any sense of the word. But I never felt so much at home. And the people there just took me in. And, uh, of course, many of them knew my parents. But I had never felt such a welcoming feeling in any other country. And I've been all over Europe. I've traveled quite a bit. But being there was just wonderful. And you mentioned Gerhardt And uh, we went to Gerhardt as part of a Veritas Heidenik, which is the Knights, of Vart, Knights and Daughters of Vartan pilgrimage to Armenia. They do it right. every year with the exception of the pandemic. But we went last year, and we were in there. And I remembered my mother had sung the Heidmer. She has a beautiful singing voice. And she sang the Heidmer when she walked in there. And wow. uh, one of our... Uh, People, our liaison, in fact, um, asked me if I would do the same thing, and I did. And I almost didn't get through it because it was just such an emotional thing for me to be able to sing in that place. And uh, you know, yeah, you're right. I mean, whether you're spiritual or not, magical, you cannot not be affected by a place like that and by a country like that. Yeah, and for those who are
1: listening who may have never been to Armenia or Gerhardt, Go! So Gerhardt is a, it's a, an ancient monastery in Armenia. The first part of it was built in the 4th century. Later on in the ninth and 10th century, the second part, a cathedral, was built. But the part that was built in the 4th century, the way it was built was this giant rock on the side of a mountain. Imagine a, a rock that's 10 stories high the villagers went from the very top of the rock and chipped in, chipped the hole and kept going until they built an actual cathedral inside this rock and carved it out. That is absolutely incredible. And what David was saying, the acoustics there are just spectacular. Oh, you yes. would think of it was state-of-the-art music venue, you know? And so you go inside this, the old part of the cathedral and it's, you're literally inside a rock, but the carvings are so intricate and beautiful. You don't know how these people did that in the fourth century with no electricity, no sophisticated tools. Um, And then in the newer cathedral, which was only built in the 9th and 10th century, a part of the, because it's right against the, the mountain, there's a stream, water that actually goes through the church mm-hmm. that it's like. Just, I just, saw I our and she
0: was kneeling down and she was touching the water, putting her hand. I said, what are you doing? You know, yeah. and she told me that this is holy water.
1: I drink it every time yeah.
0: I go. I, I had no idea. So I, I learned something new there because I, I remember I took a photograph of her as she was doing it. And I just said, what, what is that? Why are you doing that? And she said, this is holy yeah. water, David. You know, was, oh, my goodness. So it was, yeah, you cannot go there and not be moved in so many different yeah. ways. In the film, Motherland, you also, in addition to speaking with veterans and people in or from Artsakh who were there, you also talked to American lawmakers, many of whom I've had a chance to actually see personally as well. Uh, Some of them come to Times Square on the 24th of April for the genocide commemoration that's held every year that um, is sponsored by the Knights of Vartan. But talk a little bit about who you spoke to and their contribution to the film because there were quite a few familiar faces there.
1: I'm a big fan of lawmakers that really are you know on a crusade on our behalf to see justice, to seek justice for us and human rights and uh, they understand the Armenian American community, they are allies. Uh, I have a radio show and so uh, it's a news and politics radio show. So I've interviewed a lot of uh, members of Congress and other, Elected officials. So, for the film, I wanted to interview uh, the leading members of Congress who were not just part of the Armenian Congressional Caucus, but those that have really sort of fought this uh, fight with us for decades, including Senator Bob Menendez, uh, Congressman Adam Schiff, Congressman Frank Polone, Congresswoman uh, Jackie Spear, Congressman Brad Sherman, Congresswoman Katie Porter, Congresswoman uh, Barbara Lee. And as well as, of course, uh, Baroness Caroline Cox, whom I call Armenia's godmother. Mm -hmm. I can't fathom, I can't think of anyone who has been to Artsakh in Armenia over 60 times since the early 90s on humanitarian mission. That's Baroness Cox. So I have incredible, immense respect for her. So I wanted her to, to be in the film, too. Um, and that was truly an honor. Um, I wanted to talk to, uh, you know, our, our allies, our members of Congress and sort of say, what is going on? Why can't we get through to the State Department? Why can't we get through to the White House? What is this sort of blockade that we have? You know, because it's a puzzle, right? It's been a, it's been a puzzle for me to solve and to understand. And I'm not 100% there yet. But I have a much better understanding. But in this last uh, two years, almost two years, I've been trying to really put this puzzle together locally, regionally, and internationally, as to what are all the elements that are really preventing people to do the right thing. And of course, fossil fuel keeps sort of, you know, coming up. It's just a, a big part of that. There's
0: oil over there, and yeah. you know, a lot of people who. Uh, we were talking, uh, I remember very well, as if it were yesterday, uh, the day that uh, the Prime Minister uh, announced the ceasefire, if you want to call it that, at the end of the 44 days and the, the, the deal, if you want to call it that, that had been made. We were in the middle of a Knights of Artan meeting that night, and without betraying any confidences, I think it's very fair to say that there was a lot of strong emotions expressed that evening about what had happened and how it all ended. So tell me how this all affected you to put this all together. This was an incredibly very complicated and it had to be emotional process for you from the moment you decided this is something I need to do until that final edit was made in the film and you could sit back and look at it and say, okay, we've done it. What has this been like for you? How has it changed you? to put this film together.
1: Look, I, I talk about it a little bit in the film that, you know, unless you're that white guy that was born and raised in Texas and had the privilege, and there's nothing wrong with that, the privilege of sort of living and dying in their own state uh, without ever being a minority. When you're a minority, doesn't matter how many generations were born in this one nation or such, as soon as someone sort of sees you as a minority, then you're marginalized. So that's something I've sort of lived. I've lived through my entire life, you know, as an Armenian American, but also as a gay man. And that was sort of like a double whammy of of always feeling like I'm I'm looked at as a second class citizen. And when you are a minority, you hold on to your roots tightly. Oh, yeah. You know, I've lived a very continental life. Most of my friends have been non-Armenian, uh, and yet my armenianness is, is so powerful and so dominant and so when this happened it was very personal i mean i just it was just like someone was just putting a knife through my my lungs on a daily basis reading news stories and seeing what's happening you know it, it's your roots it's your people we we have as it is we have trauma and unresolved ptsd from the genocide sure. And now it was happening all over again. It was really difficult to watch some of the videos, the beheadings, the whole process. I'm not going to say the whole process was very difficult because uh, actually making this film, and I'm not a warm and fuzzy person. So I'm not about to say something like it was a rewarding experience because, well, it is a rewarding experience, but it was. But it was a contribution, though, Vic.
0: I mean, you were you were making a contribution not only to history, but to the people of today and tomorrow who don't know anything about this. I mean, this film yeah. will introduce a lot of people to what happened to our story so. for the very first time.
1: Yeah, and so it, it the whole thing has consumed my life and I have nothing to complain about. There's nothing else that I would want to consume my life today because this is that important. For me, this has been a this is a two uh, this is a process that's in two sections. The first one took a year and a half, which was making the film. Right. The second process is we've just started is to make sure that people see the film. Uh, first, people that are key, from lawmakers to members of media, academics, journalists, etc., and then of course mass audiences. And so we're working on uh, a distributor right now but we've had uh you know we've premiered the film in la and we have i was going to ask you about that school. how did
0: that go the film was premiered in july am i correct
1: yeah july 7th was our premiere at raleigh studios here in hollywood how was that and uh it was incredible it was a great experience we had uh many elected officials there congresswoman judy chu uh opened the evening and uh, we also had uh glendale's mayor arty kasakian sponsored a screening in glendale and then uh, local state senators, uh, Anthony Portantino, an assemblywoman, Rora Friedman wanted to be a part of it, too. So we had a great screening sponsored by three elected officials. And then uh, this past Tuesday, uh, Glendale City College screened it in their auditorium. So and then next, of course, we go to Washington, D.C. for a congressional screening on September fifteenth, followed by Philadelphia the next day on the sixteenth. Um, now, is there not then,
0: a screening in Virginia for that? I believe one of our the largest... DC
1: one is in yeah. So the DC one is actually in Alexandria, Virginia.
0: Okay, yeah. Okay, that's what I thought because I, I remember reading the uh, the thing. Now, how soon will it be? And I know I may be asking a question you may not have an answer to yet. Yeah. Before everybody will be able to see it,
1: I can't tell you. Because it's, it's a very complicated process of uh, getting the film to distribution, especially if it's a reputable distribution, that's really not going to either shelf your film or, you know, bastardize it, which I'm determined not to let anyone do that. So um, I couldn't tell you at least a couple of months, the very least until it's uh, available and hopefully it'll be streaming. And we'll do as many screenings as we can, but those are very complicated and costly. Also, my after DC and Philadelphia, my objective is—I mean, we were set to premiere the film in Yerevan, in Armenia. Uh, that was something that was not on my radar initially. I thought, why preach to the choir? But now, uh, just given the circumstances and the recent events, I think it's necessary. And the film is called Motherland, so I think it should have a a, a decent premiere in. The motherland
0: yeah
1: yeah and uh, so that would be in late october
0: and you'll be there for that i hope
1: yes absolutely definitely be, be there i i i can't wait to go to armenia yeah. <laughs> every excuse i find i want to go to armenia so oh
0: i know how sure. you feel i know how you feel i've actually yeah. had, i had uh, planned to go on a couple of different occasions in the last year every single one of which was postponed at the Last minute, I don't even want to tell uh, you about the frustrations I've had to deal with. But uh, it looks like it will be finally uh, happening very soon. That I'll that I'll be back there again. So I'm I can't tell you how I'm, I'm looking forward to that. You mentioned right. at the beginning of our conversation that um, you want people who are non Armenian who know nothing nothing about this to see this film. Mm-hmm. It will be an introduction to them. There's a lot of information in this ninety minutes, two hours. What is it that you hope that the audience, the general public, the people who do not really have much of an idea, may not even be able to point out Armenia or Artsakh on a map, what do you want them to get from this?
1: I want them to get what the common denominator of this film is, you've watched this, is that the very essence of this and a lot of other struggles is this film is about human rights, freedom, freedom and the right to self-determination. And those are universal. You know, I don't care where you are, where you live. Those are things that you can appreciate. And that just like we saw in Ukraine and just like we've seen in other nations, we have to keep rogue governments and dictators, brutal dictators like Galiev and Erdogan in check. And it's up to all of us to uh, hold our elected officials accountable to do that and say, why are you sending money to Azerbaijan for so-called military aid? Or why are we, why do we keep calling Turkey our, you know, strategic ally? Uh, why are they in NATO when they're violating uh, NATO's rules? And, and it just doesn't make sense. So it's really opening up people's eyes to politics of hypocrisy and double standards, which this was a big part of the double standard, and things that can happen if authoritarian governments and uh, leaders are not held accountable. And just to push for it, listen, I think that the Armenian community were very polite. You know, I grew up with parents that sort of emphasized politeness and manners all the time. And we've, we've been, we've been advocates, right? We've advocated for genocide uh, recognition and other things. It's, really time for us to take take it up a notch and become activists because nobody gives, nobody just hands you uh, your rights just because you ask politely. So part of this is also to really galvanize us, our community and say, we really need to start, if, if no one is listening to us when we're saying it nicely, maybe we need to shout, <laughs> you know, if that's what's gonna get someone's attention let's do that. In fact, let's drag them. Let's just drag them and call them out by their names because the alternative hasn't worked, right? So um, I put on a lot of hats making this film. It wasn't just as a journalist, as a filmmaker, as an activist, but also knowing full well about the, the power of public relations, communications, media, and knowing enough about politics to really take all of this into consideration.
0: What are your concerns for the future in that region? Could this happen again with even more dire consequences?
1: Yeah, there can, and the possibility is there. Listen, the way I see it is, Armenia and Artsakh are sort of these slivers of land that are stuck between these huge powers that are playing a, a Cold War era style a game of chess. Yes. And Armenia is not even a player in there, right? So they're playing and fighting each other, and we're just kind of in the crossroads. And these are the U.S. I mean, you may not think the U.S. is involved, but it is. U.S. and Russia and Turkey and Azerbaijan and a couple of other nations to a degree as well. So Armenia not having much of natural resources, doesn't have the military power, doesn't have the economic power. Doesn't have 80 million population of 80 million like Turkey. That's a huge market for European goods. What does Armenia have to leverage? Right. So it's in a very vulnerable position. But we can't be defeatists and we can't be negative. We have to keep fighting. You know, thankfully, one of the assets we have is diaspora, you know, and we have to work harder. We all have to like do 150%. And be activists, because the alternate is unthinkable.
0: It is unthinkable. The
1: alternate is unthinkable, because the end game, as you know, is they want Sunik. Yes. They want Sunik. And if they took Sunik province, it's disastrous for Armenia. It will cut off Armenia from any little bit of trade that it can do. It would be uh, unimaginable. So... You know, there are worse things that could still happen, and that's why we need to really be just on our on our tiptoes about this.
0: Indeed, we do. Um,
1: so David, um, for those that are listening, if you want to be part of Motherland, if you want to support us in taking this to uh, audiences with screenings, but especially the year of our Premiere, uh, we need your support. Um, if you are willing to either be a sponsor or just to donate toward the premiere. Or any of the screenings go to the film's website and uh, click on donate and the website is motherlanddoc.com so it's motherlanddoc.com uh, would really really appreciate it
0: and i would like to thank you first of all for for making this extraordinary uh, film this documentary widely acclaimed and it will be far more widely acclaimed once people have a chance to see it in mass, the film is called Motherland. I want to tell you right now, Vic, uh, it's been an honor to talk to you. I wish you the best with the film. And thank you for spending some time with us here on the Talking Vartan podcast. It's really been a pleasure. And uh, thank you again, David. My special thanks to Vic Jarami, director, writer, and producer of Motherland. Incidentally, the upcoming special screenings of the film later this month here on the East Coast that Vic referred to will be sponsored by the Knights of Vartan. On Thursday, September 15th, thanks to our brothers in Ani Lodge, there will be a screening of Motherland at the Alexandria History Museum's Lyceum Lecture Hall. It's in Alexandria, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C. The doors open at 6, the screening begins at 7, followed by a Q&A session with the director. And if you're in the greater Philadelphia area on the following day, Friday, September 16th, our brothers in Ardashad Lodge will sponsor a screening of Motherland at Holy Trinity Armenian Church in Cheltenham, beginning at 6.30 with light refreshments. The screening begins promptly at 7.30 with a moderated question and answer session upon the film's conclusion. We'll have the email where you can register if you'd like to attend on the Talking Vartan Facebook page, but it is, and these are all small cases, phillykov at gmail.com. That's P-H-I-L-L-Y-K-O-V-5 at gmail.com. The deadline to register for the Holy Trinity screening is Sunday, September the 11th. And for those who want to see it in Alexandria, Virginia, the deadline is September 10th. So we need to hurry our October podcast will celebrate a very special occasion for the Daughters of Vartan, a new Otyag chapter which will be in Merrimack Valley in Massachusetts, about 25 miles from Boston. Daughters of Vartan from across New England and elsewhere will be there for the institution ceremony for what will be Tsuig Otyag. Among the distinguished persons who will be in Merrimack Valley on Saturday, October 22nd, will be the Grand Matron of the Daughters of Vartan, Avakdirui Gloria Korkorian. Before that day, she'll be my special guest in her first appearance on the Talking Vartan podcast, not only to discuss the upcoming Otyag institution in Merrimack Valley, but the continuing mission of the Daughters of Vartan to serve the Armenian community both here at home and in Armenia. Also, in our next edition, we'll be reflecting on Tat’s Haydenik Six, the return to the fatherland our annual Knights and Daughters of Vartan pilgrimage to Armenia, which gets underway later this month. Of course, you can always keep up on the latest Knights and Daughters of Vartan news and events by checking out our many social media resources. The Knights and Daughters of Vartan Facebook page, always updated with photos and important information about our lodge and otiag activities and our projects in Armenia. I check it out every day, and there's always something interesting. But if Facebook is not your social media cup of tea, we're also found on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. There are also our periodic newsletters and our quarterly publication, Avaride. All of our Knights and Daughters of Vartan media resources are managed by our liaison in Yerevan, Gohar You can reach our liaison directly at Vartan at gmail.com. Now if you have any comments or questions regarding our Talking Vartan podcast, or know of a Talish, Otyag, or individual knight or daughter whom you feel deserves some special recognition, I'd love to hear from you. And soon, you can reach me at talkingvartanpodcast at gmail.com or through the Talking Vartan Facebook page. Special thanks as always to Malabar Samian for our theme music, Lord Killorky from his album One Take. Armenian dance songs. Talking Vartan, the Knights and Daughters of Vartan podcast, is the exclusive property of the Knights and Daughters of Vartan and Asped David Metzorian. Any use of this program without the expressed written permission of both parties is prohibited. It was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who said, Everybody can be great, because everybody can serve. Thank you for your service to the Knights and Daughters of Vartan. I'm Asped David Medzore in Avardot Lodge Number One in Boston. Shnora galem, sireli